0: Section fourteen of Birds and All Nature, Volume Five, Number Three, March eighteen ninety nine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org dot org. Recording by Avahi in August two thousand fifteen. Section fourteen, a vein of humor by Eleonora Kinsley Marble Not only human beings, it is said, but all other animals of earth, air, and water have their play spells. To the question of how man can know this, one can only say that man, being also animal, must certainly understand something of the nature of his lower brethren our mental composition is of the same substance as theirs with a certain superstructure of reasoning faculty however which has enabled us to become their masters the various emotions and faculties such as love fear curiosity memory imitation jealousy etc of which man boasts are to be found often in a highly developed state among the lower animals so that it is not at all surprising that among both birds and mammals we find individual species possessing a more or less keen sense of humour. The question of why animals play is by no means new to philosophical inquiry. Herbert Spencer says animals play in their early or youthful stage of life because of their surplus energy the same reason that we ascribe to the child, referring more particularly to the strictly muscular plays, in contradistinction to vocal recreation. An eminent philosopher, however, disagrees with him in this, contending that play in animals is not a mere frolicsome display of surplus energy, but a veritable instinct and a matter of serious moment as well as necessity. However that may be, the fact remains that they do play, and, as the writer can aver, in a spirit not at all serious, but with all the happy abandon of a child. Among the wags of the feathered tribe, the mockingbird and blue jay deserve special mention, though the raven, crow, catbird, jackdaw, and magpie may, from the point of mischief, be numbered in the list. In looking at the ungainly pelican, one would smile to hear him called a humorist, but as the seal is the buffoon of the aquarium, so the pelican plays the part of the clown in the zoo. His specialty is low comedy, and general the victims of his jokes are the dignified storks and the rather stupid gulls, companions in captivity. The stork's singular habit of standing on one leg affords the pelican a rare chance for a little fun, so he watches until a stork, in a meditative mood, takes up his favourite attitude beside the tank. Then up waddles the pelican and, with a chuckle, jostles against him and sends him tumbling into the water. It is a question whether the stork enjoys the sport, but the pelican evidently does, for he leaps about evincing the utmost delight, flapping his wings and squawking, or laughing, in triumph. The gulls he treats in a different fashion. No sooner does he see one seize a piece of bread, or some dainty contributed by a spectator, than up he rushes with a squawk and prodigious flapping of wings, forcing the gull to take refuge in the water, while he with much satisfaction devours the morsel. Our animal friends tells of a pelican who made friends with a tiny kitten when in a lively mood the pelican perhaps recalling how his parents or himself in a wild state were wont to catch fish would pick up the kitten toss it in the air and stand with his huge mouth wide open as if intending to catch it as if it came down Puss seemed to consider it excellent fun as with quick emotion she turned over in the air alighting every time uninjured upon her feet then off she would scamper to the pelican running about his long legs as though seeking to knock him down watching his opportunity he would grasp her again toss her into the air and thus the sport would go on till the bird himself tired of it the mocking bird that prints of song and mimics possesses a sense of humour highly diverting and very human-like The male bird, that is, for the female views life from a more serious standpoint, her domestic duties it would seem weighing heavily upon her mind. We speak of the thieving instinct of this bird, as well as of the blue-jay, and other kindred species, because of that mischievous spirit which leads them to seize any small bright article which comes in their way, and, when unobserved, to secrete it that they never purloin or hide these objects when observed is thought to be proof conclusive that it is done from the pure love of stealing and nothing else. I hide and you seek. In that childish game does not the one who is to secrete the article insist that the finder close his eyes till the object sought is carefully hidden? What amusement would be afforded the jay or the mocking-bird Should he attempt to secrete an article while you are looking if we could only interpret the sparkle in their bead-like eyes as we can that in a child's when engaged in the same game how much mischief we would read there as the owner of these secreted articles hunts high and low for them in presence of the fun-loving birds where did you hide it jay pleaded a lady who had left her silver thimble upon a table and after a few minutes absence returned to find it gone there has been nobody in the room since i left so you must have taken it mr j the pet of the household hopped into his cage and standing upon his perch looked demurely at the questioner you are a naughty bird said his mistress who had in remembrance finger rings watch keys collar buttons and similar articles which, from time to time, had as mysteriously disappeared. And I'm going to shut you in, which she did, fastening the insecure door of his prison with a stout piece of string. Jay gave a shrill shriek, as of laughter, when his mistress continued the search, turning up the edge of the carpet, searching the pockets of garments hanging on the wall, anywhere, everywhere, that articles one time missing had been secreted but look where she would the thimble could not be found a month went by and still jay remained an unwilling if not a subdued prisoner as his mistress one morning sat sewing in the room jay gave a final peck at the string which confined him and at once without a word hopped to a chair from which one rung was missing his mistress was watching him and to her intense amusement saw him very deftly extract from the hole in the leg her lost thimble in the same household came as a visitor a little boy named johnny of a very peevish and fretful disposition when refused anything he especially desired the whole house was made to resound with shrieks of ma 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 jay listened very attentively at first but in a few days had not only caught the words but the very intonation. Johnny never entered a room without the bird crying in a peevish tone, in a very ecstasy of mischief. Ma! 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 I hate that bird, said the boy one day when Jay had greeted him with an unusually whining cry. He ought to be killed. He makes me nervous. Then I would stop whining if I were you, suggested his mother, and Johnny wisely concluded he would a mocking-bird which frequented the grounds of a gentleman in virginia was noted not only as a most mischievous fellow but as one of the most divine songsters of his tribe so heavenly was his music and so superior to that of his fellows that at eventide in the general chorus his voice soared above all the rest men women and children gathered for his fame had travelled far and near to hear him sing but in the very midst of his divine strains, Jip, for so they named him, would suddenly cease and, flying away, conceal himself behind a chimney on the housetop. Presently he would sneak down to the eaves and peer cautiously over, to see if his self-invited audience had scattered. If they were still there, he would again hide himself, returning shortly to peer over the eaves again. As soon as the back of his last auditor was visible, down he would fly to his chosen perch, and resume his glorious song, tempting his audience to return. This time he would regale them with the choicest of his trills, breaking off in the midst as before, and mischievously flying away to hide himself. This little comedy he would repeat three or four times during an afternoon or a moonlight night. A black cat of the household was a recipient of his practical jokes. When she was passing, Jip found it exceedingly amusing to spring upon her back, give her a sharp dig with his beak, and then spring nimbly to a low branch, exulting over the cat's vain effort to locate her tormentor. A favorite joke of a mockingbird in Richmond, Virginia, was, when espying a dog, to utter a shrill whistle in exact imitation of a man summoning that animal. Thus, preemptorily called, the canine would suddenly halt, prick up his ears, look up and down the street, then, seeing no master, trot on his way. Again the bird would whistle, but in a more mandatory tone than before. The dog would stop, gaze about in a puzzled manner, then, in response to another whistle, dash forward in the direction of the sound. The mystification of the dog appeared to afford the mocking-bird the most delight. More particular were not only one dog, but several would collect under his cage, whining and barking, vainly seeking to locate their masters. Among the mammals, the elephant, in general estimation, possesses the drollest sense of humor. The writer never will forget the mischievous pranks of a huge fellow among a herd of elephants feathered in a pen in Central Park, New York only those beyond his reach escaped his teasing, his sinuous trunk tickling those near, now here, now there, his little pig-like eyes twinkling with genuine humour. His companions did not respond in kind, not feeling perhaps in a playful mood, which fact seemed in no way to diminish the big fellow's amusement, for he continued the sport at intervals, much to the edification of the spectators even when engaged in piling up huge slabs of lumber in the sawmills in india these huge animals while away the tedious hours of labor by many a little prank or joke at the expense of their drivers a favorite one is after disposing of one load and returning for another to fill their trunks with odds and ends as they move leisurely along a stray nail three or four pebbles a tuft of grass with a bit of earth still clinging to its roots a discarded chi-root, or other small articles which may lie in their paths. These are collected, and when the trunk is packed to their satisfaction, quietly turned upward, and the mass blown against the naked stomachs of the drivers, dozing upon their backs. End of section 14